Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where, for a moment in time, you can be you with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health, and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. One of life's biggest mysteries is why exactly music is so powerful for our souls. You probably have a soundtrack to your life, a jam for those happy days, maybe one for the tough days too. And you can't forget those special songs that keep you in your driveway until they play all the way through. But undoubtedly, music has the power to heal. And in our communities, it is an auditory expression of our culture's fabric. It's who we are and what we believe in. Our guest today is not only a testament to this, but his story gives us something even bigger. Because the music he is creating is not only helping us see the world in all its complicated glory, but is also creating a future that heals us all. Dr. Alexander Lloyd Blake is a lot of things. He's an award-winning conductor. He's a composer. He's an arranger. He's a vocal contractor. He is a singer, and he is a music activist. But before this, he was a young boy in North Carolina, where his first introduction to music was in a church where he was a little kid singing in the adult choir. Gospel music to me is something that resonates really deeply. I think a lot of music that stems from Black tradition is based in experience and stories. Even in the joyous songs, they come from a place of either dealing with or coming from trauma, from resistance. And there is an emotional pull I tie that to a spiritual realm and purpose, and this is where I feel fed. Really more than any other religious experience was listening to a gospel choir. You can feel people's emotion um, when they're singing. And not to say that that is specific to gospel music, but I think it is tangible in a way that other genres might not have the same access to. And so I think that's why so many people enjoy just the environment that comes around that type of music. Yeah, I agree completely. And, you know, we're speaking the week of Martin Luther King Jr.'s official holiday in the United States. And I think a lot about how back when he was doing the work and touring, he would call gospel singers and have them sing to him. And I think that really speaks to what you're saying. And I want to ask you about that as someone that's been in the church. What types of things were you turning to gospel to as a young person, as a teenager, to help you move through the world? Who so many things. (laughs) My own struggles personally, you know, things that I was dealing with at home, I felt like I turned to gospel music to vent. You know, not every time was negative. I I love singing and jumping around when I was younger, but there are definitely songs that I think spoke to me and allowed me to deal with things I didn't feel like I could talk about openly. And even now, I think some of these songs I listen to that really kind of speak to specific emotions and about really getting through and trusting and having hope and faith, I feel like it it kind of served as a therapy or a friend, really. 
Yeah, that's so beautiful to hear you say that. I had similar experiences as a young person. And, you know, we both identify as being Black gay men. I know personally how complicated that relationship is because you find so much hope in gospel music. And then you go to church on Sunday and you hear words that don't make you feel so hopeful. Did you have that experience? Was there ever a time that you were in the church feeling that you weren't supposed to be there? You know, it's interesting. My pastor never openly spoke toward any gay topics. It really wasn't mentioned in my church. <laughs> However, it was certainly mentioned in the community. I mean, really, even up through my college years, I was running into experiences with Christians, people who I considered friends who didn't know about me, would say harmful things. I learned from a very early age that uh, to be gay, especially in the religious environment, was not something that I could be freely. You use this word freely, and I was telling the producers before this that my grandmother, who still, even in the pandemic, she was doing the drive through church. She was like going every week and her mask, windows up, all these things. Very religious woman, love her to death. <laughs> and she called me because there was a sermon at her church, the church I grew up in, where the pastor said, hey, y'all should love your LGBTQ children. You know, we're going to just say it because they hadn't said it ever. And she called me crying. She was so relieved to finally be like, yo, God says I can love you in the ways I do love you, or that God also loves you the ways that I love you. Have you found that kind of complicated experience to be your own damaging the Black church, especially as a young person? A lot of things that were spoken in the unspoken. I feel like everyone knew about me. But no one said anything. And to me, I'm learning in my older age of wisdom, silence is a response. And, you know, everyone tiptoeing around and being asked questions about girlfriends and everyone knew that was not the case. Uh, those things are triggering. People ask you when you can get married. So I was older. I didn't really start coming out to people in North Carolina until I was 27, 28. You know, luckily, I started with low-hanging fruit. So I started with friends I had made in L.A., one of my best friends. You know, she'd asked me earlier when we were at UCLA together, and I lied because, you know, that was, that was what I was used to. Yeah. And then I ended up actually in, like, a romantic relationship situation. You know, she was a friend, so I talked to her about it. And I was finding more and more people out here, I would tell them, and they'd be like, okay. And your shirt's blue. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I mean, it was nothing. And I realized that, you know, how much of this am I carrying from home? I was in my 30s before I started talking about it with my family. Wow. And yeah, the comment that came to me was, you know, well, yeah, I always knew. And I think I can feel the intent to be one of support. That's not how I felt. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I, I was walking on eggshells and I was, you know, trying to pray away and do all these things and living in shame. The child in me could have really used someone to reach out and say, you are okay as you are. For Alex, this juxtaposition of two worlds, one very liberal and one very conservative, one in L.A. versus one in the South, became very complicated. But as a gay Black man, music was the way he could make sense of himself in this world, because it's where he found comfort in learning of the enormous contributions his culture made to music as a whole in both the past and the present. As vocalists who sing stories, I think we have a huge responsibility to treat all those stories well, 
and equitably. And then I saw Considering Matthew Shepard, actually, which was a piece that was done by Consperare Professional Choir in Texas. And it told the beautiful perspective of the not-so-beautiful murder of Matthew Shepard, a gay student who was killed. And that was the first time that I was able to see what music can do in a space where it is everyone is held for a moment, a couple of hours, and really kind of forced, encouraged, might be nice, to uh, consider, you know, all of the aspects and feelings around such an incident and then really have to kind of sit with the feelings around the issues and the people. Yeah. Why do you think that is possible only through music? And, you know, I used to write a lot about death and people never changes the behaviors. You know, we do all these stories and you watch the news every night. You hear about people dying tragically and it doesn't change anybody. But when you put music or create music as a space to tell a story, you know, the word that comes to mind is song telling. Dolly Parton uses that Mm -hmm. phrase, song telling a lot, which I love. It does make it stick with people a bit deeper. Why do you think that is? I think when we read or when we see stories to protect ourselves, I think we keep the stories distant from us emotionally. And when you see and hear so many stories, I'm going to you know, talk about police brutality, for instance. As extreme as it might seem, when you start to see so many people being shot on Facebook or you know, other platforms, you become desensitized. And I, I don't think that's people intentionally just saying, I don't care. I think it's, this is way too much to take in. So I'm just going to treat it as this incident and I will get mad from an intellectual point of view. But when you hear these stories in music, I mean, I think music is used to express and I think naturally people mirror that. And so the emotions I think are brought back into the stories and then people have to think it's not just anger, it's grief, it's sadness, it's embarrassment, it's frustration. And when you are in a musical environment, your emotions are allowed to take over. And I think then people feel a lot more intimately connected to the stories, stories of injustice or heartbreak, you know, loss, uh, joy, love as well. I think it really allows people to engage in a different way. And it's harder to turn that off in a musical environment. I don't know why this just popped to mind. I think a lot about TLC's Waterfalls. Mm -hmm. What is that song about? And why do you think that's an example of this? You know, it's funny because I I remember singing the words for years before I even knew what happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the three letters took him to his final rest gives me chills just saying that. Like when I finally understood what that song in the video was about. Again, I think it just becomes, I think it makes what seems distant so much more accessible. And there are experiences I think many of us will never, ever have to endure personally. But I think music allows a lot more proximity to issues that might not be our own. Yeah. And I think there's something to people learning these songs and finding out later what they mean. So Waterfalls, again, we were younger, probably didn't understand the context. And then later someone tells me, oh, you know, that's about HIV AIDS. Or Together Again by Jada Jackson. Everyone knows that song. And that's about her losing her friends. Yeah. Then it makes people question, you know, you've sung these songs. You have internalized these words. So it kind of makes people feel like, oh, well, I've been, I've been a part of this narrative. 
unknowingly. And again, it makes it your story too, in a sense, or at least your opportunity to be empathetic. So here's Alex, a young man learning about a very traditional Western music with empathy and respect. But he didn't feel that love back when it came to the sounds of his community, that rich gospel music he grew up with. And after seeing his culture missing in that high-level discourse that revolved around classical music, those conversations about richness and impact on the genre overall, he decided to build Tonality, an award-winning choral ensemble that emphasizes spreading messages of social justice. And this idea that originated as a tool for inclusion grew, but in ways that he did not anticipate. So, Tonality is a vocal ensemble, and we use music and we use stories to speak to issues of injustice, of inequality, and as we've been talking about here, really using music as a catalyst for people to be activated and not just to learn, but how to get involved in creating a more just world for all of us. Our focus actually at first was not about social justice directly. It really was to address some of these inequalities within classical music that I saw. I heard someone misrepresent a genre or a style that I grew up singing, guessing the ways that gospel music was described. Don't use beauty, use energy. Mm. Right. As if this music is not beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And the attention we would spend toward the music of the classical canon and the composers and knowing their history. I said, I knew how Bach could tie his shoe before he wrote one of the cantatas. Meanwhile, I mean, we'll be lucky if we even hear the names of the composers of spirituals and gospel music in a rehearsal. And so... You know, I started to feel that way about music that I knew personally and then going through my schooling, my education, different performance environments. I realized it wasn't just Black music, Mm -hmm. Hispanic music, Hindustani music, really music, again, that was not coming from Western European cultures was treated in that way. And I said, we could do better. There's a way to do better. And so I thought, how can we give the intentionality and respect through our musical practices to more cultures than we're seeing now. And that's how Tonality started. And so when we started that first meeting, even with most of the people in that room not knowing each other, you could immediately feel when we started singing, the intention was there. And I think it makes people sing differently. And we felt that with our audience. Our first concert was free, because again, who were we (laughs) to charge anyone? It was jam-packed. I think people were really interested in what does this mean? I have found that a lot of people have resonated with this same call to find an equitable space. And we weren't really, we received a lot of support, I think, from outside musical organizations and core organizations. When you were just telling that story about the first concert, I thought back to your earlier story about your first time in which gospel really had a big impact on you when you were sitting there seeing kind of the environment of the church. Do you see these two experiences as being similar? Did you, when you were sitting there at the first concert, thinking back to that first time you heard gospel music as like the powerful thing it is? I think so. We've done this piece called Seven Last Words of the Unarmed by Joel Thompson, and it takes the last words of seven Black men who have been shot and killed by police. And obviously in a very different way, but 
music bringing out such a strong emotional response is what I felt and what I know uplifts and encourages and challenges and activates me and has since my days in the church. And I feel like that is what I believe music can do if we choose to use it in those ways to speak about issues of our time. And and again, our audience doesn't always reflect the families of those stories. And so maybe for the first time, someone has to sit there for a couple of minutes and engage emotionally when men are hitting themselves, slapping themselves on the chest and saying, you shot me, you shot me. That's intense. And it's a very different experience than seeing it or hearing about it or reading about it. And so I think, yeah, I think the way that gospel music moves me, I would like to think that the music that we do and the ways that we tell stories in our concerts also helps to move people to a heightened emotional state. And in that state, then we hope to help them find ways to get involved now that they're emotionally connected. Tonality was finding its voice and sharing the experiences of Black Americans, pulling the curtain back and delving into the emotions of Black identity rather than just an explanation on paper. But then something happened that propelled the discourse into center stage, George Floyd's murder. On May 25, 2020, Floyd was killed by the hands of police in Minneapolis after a convenience store clerk called 911 over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. As they detained him, former police officer Derek Chauvin took a knee to his neck. Eight minutes and 46 seconds later, he was gone. For Tonality, an organization that has become known for making you feel what it meant to be Black in America through music, this moment was a turning point. And suddenly, the whole world was watching. So, yeah, George Floyd's murder did a lot, actually, I think, for Tonality. In its obviously unfortunate circumstance, I think it, like the whole world, it turned people on to the realization that everyone needed to look inward, that that injustice wasn't just that particular incident, but really so many systems, especially within our country, help perpetuate or at least do not resist the racism that we see. And so when that work was seen within our choral environment, I think a lot of people turned to leaders and organizations that had been doing this work well before. Because I think people were really inspired to actually make the real changes, but maybe didn't have the answers of how to do that. And so because Tonality has been doing this work really since 2016, I kind of felt, I think like so many Black people mm-hmm. kind of felt thrust into a spotlight. <laughs> yeah. And for me, this is a work I wanted to be doing. I know a lot of people felt uncomfortable. It's like I did not, I don't walk around as a diversity expert. But these are conversations that I, I was hoping to have. You know, again, it's why Tonality started. And so it really allowed us to move intentionally and to help people move with us, you know, A group of colleagues and I started the Black Voices Matter Pledge, which listed out some very practical steps about how to get involved. We worked with an amazing artist, Roman Giannartho, who made the song Build Me Up, which kind of became an anthem for us uh, around the Black Lives Matter movement. I wrote my first piece about criminal justice and how that affects communities. So I think really this allowed us 
you know, as we were doing this thing on the side, at least from my perspective of talking about these things directly and really engaging our audiences and our singers and composers in this way to have more of a platform, a broader platform to say, you know, this work doesn't have to be this thing on the side. We all care about these things and we're all musicians, so we can use our gifts to bring more people into this conversation. I love that because so many people I hear constantly say, you know, I feel so much. I'm so sad. I'm seeing the news. I don't know what to do. Where do I fit into this? And what I'm seeing from what the work you're doing is you're saying, well, you can do the work in everything that you do because the genre of music that Tonality typically does is not one I would ever think of seeing on Kelly Clarkson's show, singing <laughs> about Black Lives Mattering, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is not a thing. <laughs> It's true. I know. It was interesting. That was special to say, oh, yeah, you know, the song that they chose to play was a song on the Three Strikes Law, which talks about the issues of criminal justice and how they are certainly uh, unjust. Something I'm thinking about right now, and I don't know if you'll relate to this, is, uh, you know, I get asked a lot, how am I feeling about the world around me? You know, it's so dark. We're seeing all these stories. And, you know, we as Black people not only do we know that these stories have already existed, but we also come from a deep history of knowing that we overcome them. You know, we had 400 years of slavery. We overcame Mm -hmm. them. And I always tell people, you know, I feel good a lot of days when I think about it, when I let myself think about it at scale, because I see more and more people talking about my life. And it feels good to see people fighting for my life in the various ways that they can. Do you feel good these days as you do this work? Is it making you feel more hopeful as you keep the battle going for justice? Hmm. I'm certainly inspired by the attention that's given. I feel that sometimes we get in our own way. We as, I'm going to say liberals, (laughs) get in our own way by letting intention sometimes override impact. How we feel about situations, how we feel about ourselves in those situations sometimes causes us to pause in shame or frustration. I do feel like we're moving out of that, but those have been a lot of conversations I've been having Uncenter yourself, and I think you'll find that you can move freer to help those around you. I do feel, though, yes, I mean, certainly, I think it's easy to say the conversations that we're having now were not happening a couple years ago. And now I think it's really, you know, how do we keep this up when it's no longer trending? And it's no longer the post that everyone's talking about, because this work, as you mentioned, you know, this injustice trend has lasted a long time. (laughs) And I think the more we uncover how ingrained some of these patterns are, the harder it gets. And a lot of this work is not fun and it's not public (laughs) and it's frustrating and it's hard and it takes a long time. But I do feel, again, that people are open to learning how they can be a part of the change, no matter how fast or slow that moves. And I'm learning too in my own growth and awareness about patience that, you know, you're not going to move anyone faster than they want to move. I think I'm learning that politically as well. So I do feel encouraged and I, I feel seen in a different way. Tonality continues to stay on course in its goal of delivering authentic stories. And for Alex, bringing choral music into the mainstream using the message of inclusion and storytelling is a big opportunity. 
And thanks to this mission, the group is catching the attention of artists like Bjork, who Tonality recently shared a stage with in Los Angeles. But with more attention comes more responsibility, which is not a challenge Alex has to take on alone. With his community at his side, collaborating every step of the way, the vocal ensemble continues to share their stories and spread understanding. I mean, really for Tonality, what an amazing opportunity to be brought in. You know, I think we certainly don't consider ourselves on the sidelines. Obviously, we consider the work that we do important, but we also, we are aware, and I'm aware that choral music is not exactly the most trending type of music out there. So to be able to do that on such a huge stage is really exciting. I'm, I'm excited to see what might come from these opportunities. I think it's so difficult to get involved, to have organizations and different people in, like you said, uh, kind of the more famous <laughs> identities, to be able to reach out and say, this group is doing the work that I care about, and this is my way to help them. And I think for Bjork, for us, for Kelly Clarkson, like you don't have to do the work all your own. I think you know there are people who maybe feel that burden that I need to take on all the things. And I think this is where collaboration really helps. There's a group that's doing this. There's a choir that's doing this. You can get involved in this way. So I, I would say it certainly would be a great model. And I'm sure many other artists who are involved in this work would appreciate if this kind of collaboration became more of a mainstay. I love that we are ending on this idea that if you yourself are too overwhelmed to do the work, that maybe the path forward is collaboration or community building. Is that right? Absolutely. When two worlds collide and are drastically different, it can be difficult to pinpoint where you fit in or where you can bring your authentic self. Alex found a real need in elevating his culture the sounds of gospel choirs that introduced him to his own passion and then turned it into a community vessel that heals its own members and the world. And it's within the richness of this culture, the one they know deeply and is ingrained in their own identity, is where they find support in one another to face what is next. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A shout out to our guest, Dr. Alexander Lloyd-Blake. I'm your host, Zach Stafford. Zach Stafford.